Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist TJ Malkanji. What is the main ingredient to faith? Or rather, what did I title this on YouTube? You'll start it from here, wherever I go out. I forget what I titled today. Faith will never work without this. All right. Faith will never work without this. What's the main ingredient to faith? The key, the essential ingredient and component to faith's operation in your life. Now, before I get into that, I want to start off by talking about how powerful faith is and why you need to develop your faith and why the Christian life is a life of faith. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20 Jesus said to his disciples, because of your unbelief, you couldn't, in context, cast out a demon. The devil was continually uh, being a problem for you. The enemy that confronted you, you weren't able to overcome. And he said the reason why was because of your unbelief. Or another way to say it would be your little faith, your tiny faith. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith... As a mustard seed, pure faith or faith in its purest form with the absence of doubt or unbelief, that's what Jesus was saying. He's not just saying if you have a little bit of faith but all kinds of doubt, you'll still get it. No, he's saying if you'll have mustard seed faith that's pure in its form and is void of unbelief or skepticism or doubt or carnal thinking, its power will carry the capacity to do this. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. What's a mountain? It's an immovable obstacle, an impossible situation, something that is not humanly possible to achieve, something you're facing today that may be an insurmountable obstacle, something that uh, the doctor said is never going to be cured, something that in human standards it's seen as not only, not even remarkable, but just ridiculous to think that uh, a human can achieve that in his own strength. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about mountains. Mountains, he's not talking about moving uh, Mount Everest from Nepal to uh, Montreal, Quebec. He's talking about moving immovable obstacles out of your way so you can keep on moving and you can keep on uh, doing what God's called you to do. And he said, if you have faith in its purest form, with the absence of unbelief or, or doubt, you, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So notice how Jesus didn't allow for uncertainties in his statement. He didn't say, if you'll say to the mountain, move from here to there, that, you know, perhaps in God's will or timing or sovereign choice of things, that he'll see it fit to rule in your favor. No, doesn't even, he doesn't even talk about God's sovereignty and all this because God in his sovereignty has implemented the law of faith and within the law of faith, he's given us the ability now to use these laws, implement or exercise rather these laws and affect change in our situations, affect change in our life. So he says, if you will say to this mountain, it will move and there's no room for doubt in that statement. 
There's no maybes. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's if you operate the law of faith, you will have what you say. The mountain will move. The sickness will go. The marriage will be restored. The depression will break. The anxiety will subside. And you'll have and you'll taste and you'll see of the goodness of the Lord. So there's no room for doubt. And there's a lot of Christian preaching, uh, especially on YouTube now, where it's all about making sense of life when you don't see things happen. That's not what good preaching is. Good preaching is I'm declaring the word of the Lord and it's, up to, it's not up to God to align his will with our will. It's up to us to align our minds with his will, stand in faith, be immovable and steadfast in that so that we can see things happen. Remarkable things happen. The irreversible things reverse. It's not up to God to explain himself. And you have a lot of preachers that they don't preach, they're explainers. Well, we know what the Bible says, but we also have to understand that some... God didn't say, explain why things don't happen. God said, preach my word. Those that do believe will latch on, and these signs and wonders will follow those that believe, and those that don't believe... That, that, there's nothing you can do to help them other than to just keep teaching the word and pray that God would reveal this to them. That's what it is. There's no, there's no explanation. Even Paul says in Romans 3, even if some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify or make void or cancel out the faithfulness of God? Certainly not, Paul says. Does somebody's unbelief nullify, make void or cancel out the promises of God. Absolutely not, Paul said. No. Rather, let every man be a liar and God be true. What is Paul saying? He's saying, even if you have some knucklehead preacher coming out and saying, I know what's in the Bible, but we also have to understand that life sometimes has a way of putting out surprises for you. And God's promises are there. However, we have to just leave it up into his hands, whether he'll do it for us. And no, that's, that's an undependable God that you're preaching. That's an unfaithful God. That's a, an unsteady God that you're preaching. God is not double-minded. He rebukes double-mindedness. God's a single-minded God. What he said he will do, he will do. That's why I always pick up my Bible before I read it. And I say, this is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I can say what it says I can say. Today I'm going to receive the, the um, incorruptible, unchangeable word of the living God and I'm never going to be the same. Never, never, never. God's not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should change his mind. I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts to bless you, to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. God's not going back on his word. He's not double-minded. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heavens. And so the onus is not on God. He's already said and he's already done everything he's going to do and say. It's up to us now to believe and now exercise the law of faith, which is what? Sow the word in your heart. Speak the word out of your mouth. Do the word with your hand. I'll say that again. The law of faith is three-dimensional. It's sow the word in your heart to affect your thinking. Change your heart. Change your perspective on things. Then that will overflow in your confession for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And now you start to speak differently. Well, Jesus said when you start to speak differently, mountains start to move. And then not only are you going to start speaking and having a different confession, but you're going to start doing things differently. For faith without works 
is dead. Faith will overflow in what you say and in what you do. And what you do. And nothing is impossible when you exercise the laws of faith. Ask Moses. Moses is at the Red Sea. God, what are we going to do? We're going to die. None of us know how to swim. What did God say? Didn't I give you a rod? Didn't I say with it you can do signs and wonders? What's that rod? That's the rod of faith. It's, it's believing in the word of God. That rod didn't have any in, in, uh, power within itself, innate power within itself. That rod just represented faith in God. That's all it was. And God said, take the rod and wave it over the sea. Didn't I say I'll, I'll, I'll cause you to do signs and wonders with that thing? Wave it over the sea. And when he did, when he applied the law of faith, the sea split left and right. And the Bible says they walked through the sea as on dry ground. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And so there's no room for uncertainty. There's no room for doubt. There's no if, ends, or maybes. There's you exercise the law of faith. Even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, you will have what you say. The mountains will move. Things will change. You'll enjoy wonderful results while you're yet in the land of the living. So what's the key ingredient that most people miss when operating the laws of faith. What is the, the main law of the Bible that if this law is not fulfilled, no other law will be fulfilled? Turn with me to James, the second, cha the second chapter. James, the second chapter. If you can actually, for some reason, I feel like I'm not centered here on this, on this uh, thing. So put it on the first uh, thing. And then, yeah. For some reason, we're not, I'm not centered. James chapter 2, thanks angel, James chapter 2 and verse 8. So what is the main thing that keeps people's faith from operating effectively, efficiently, and without hindrance? James chapter 2 and verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, pause there. The Bible calls what we're about to read the royal law. What is a royal law? The supreme law. The law of laws, the golden law, as other people put it. That this law, if ignored, no other thing in the covenants of God will work for you. That ultimately, Jesus actually said, on this law hangs all the law and the prophets. On this royal law hangs all the law and the prophets, meaning everything God has ever said he would do, he will only do for you if you uphold this royal law, if you walk in this royal law. Well, what is this royal law? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, but stumble in one point, becomes guilty of all. For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So, so speak and so do and those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 14 connects it. A lot of people, they stop at verse 13. That's their sermon. But James, remember, there's no chapter, verse division in the inspired scriptures. These were added by men for reference sake. But if you continue on, he connects something. He connects faith to the royal law of love. 
What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And what works is he talking of? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart and be in peace, be warmed and be filled. So you send him best wishes. See someone that's in drastic, dire need of clothing or food or anything, and you just look at him and say, best wishes to you. James says, but you don't give him the things which are actually needed for the body and for his life. What does that profit anybody? Thus also faith by itself is dead. So James 2, in verse 8, he brings out the royal law and he states in evident terms what that royal law is as he, he quotes the scriptures. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the royal law. Let's put that down in the comment section. Love is the royal law. Love is the royal law. Hey, Pastor Tina, that's wonderful news. Sunday was great with new faces. Praise God. Craig and Ke uh, Pastor Craig and Tina, that's awesome. It was nice spending the week with you guys. Love you. Put that in the comment section. Love is the royal law. So James says that if you don't love people, and how did Jesus say we're to love people? It's not just, you know, love the way you see fit to love. Because even James says, if your love is merely in word, but there's no action or truth tied to it. It's insincere, and it's a love that will fail. It's a love that is a counterfeit of that which is pure. Well, what is pure love? Where do we see pure love demonstrated? Obviously, at the cross, God demonstrated his love towards us in that he gave his only son for us sinners even while we were still in sin. And Jesus goes into a great deal in John chapter 15, uh, he goes into great detail in John chapter 15 as to what perfect love is in relation to us and fellow man. What essentially is the love walk? You have a lot of word of faith guys, they call it the love walk. The love walk. Are you walking in love? You've heard that growing up in church. Are you walking in love? Are you walking in love? Is that the love walk that you're taking? John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus explains the love walk. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Walk in my love. Remain in my love. Imitate my love. Do what I have done to you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love or walk in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Wow. So Jesus wasn't even exempt from this royal law of love. Jesus himself had to uphold this royal law of love. Or he himself would have departed from his father's love. He said, I, remember, Jesus is God in flesh. But he's in all points tempted as we are. Yet without fail. Yet without fail. He is all, in all points tempted as we are. Yet without sin. That means he was tempted to not love at times. He was tempted to, he had the same temptations. He was tempted at times to get in the flesh because he was fully flesh and fully God. He partook of flesh and blood, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So he had the temptation 
at times, perhaps, to step out. But the Bible says he remained in the Father's commandments and abode in his love. Hallelujah. That's powerful when you think of it that way. Remember, Jesus was even tempted to not go to the cross. He himself in the Garden of Gethsemane says, if this cup can pass from me, let it be so. Yet not my will, but your will be done, Father. That proves that God's demonstration of love at Calvary had Jesus subjected himself to the desires of his flesh to step out of his love for humanity, humanity would have never been redeemed. Humanity would have never been saved. And uh, the plan of redemption would have failed. But the scripture makes it clear. He subjected his flesh will to the spirit's will. And he said, not mine will be done, but thine be done. And he chose to walk in love even when it hurt the most. Even when it backfired the most. Even when it produced the most amount of offense towards him ever. As they spat on him and beat him and ripped his beard off his face and scourged him and whipped him and nailed him to a tree and crucified him and said all kinds of false things evil things against him and mocked him. And the Bible says the soldiers were punching him and saying, prophesy, which one of us struck, struck your face? And as he hangs on that cross, they're there sneering at him. You saved others, save yourself. What was Jesus' reaction? Because remember, he could have called 12 legions of angels down to earth and have annihilated the human race right on the spot with the flick of a of, of, of a, uh, the snap of a finger. And yet, on that cross, he says, don't you think I could do all those things? And yet, he remained. Why? Love kept him on that tree. He had the ability, being God, to call on heaven, to call fire down from heaven, and destroy the entire human race. And just have this whole world get zapped into some black hole in space, and God start new. Just say, to heck with them. They don't want me. They don't get me. And yet, in all of that, Jesus says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but I do. And essentially, that's what makes the law of love easier to walk by. The walk of love. The love walk becomes much easier when you focus on God's word and the joy set before you that there's a reward for those that walk in love. That's what Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12 says, he, he endured such hostility from sinners against himself because he looked forward to the reward of the joy set before him. When you focus on the hostility that you're suffering, the injustice that you're facing, and the perhaps offenses that are being thrown your way. And the Bible says offenses will come, so you can't avoid it. It's going to come. You're going to get offended one point or another. But the Bible says in all the offense and all the hostility, if you focus on the reward of walking in love, and remember the Bible makes it clear, love is a labor, love is a work, 
And God, Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love in that you have loved and served one another. Hallelujah. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. That means what you sow is what you're going to reap. If you sow hate and you sow corruption, you will from those things reap acid. You'll reap something that just destroys Martin Luther King is very famous of saying, for saying, I have chosen love for hate is too great a burden to bear. What a powerful quote. I have chosen love for hate is too great a burden to bear. Too great a burden to bear. And you look at some people uh, around you that carry bitterness in their spirit, that are unforgiving people, that do not walk the law of love. They're very hard people to be around. They're very offended. They're hurt. And because they're hurt, as cheesy as the statement goes, hurt people hurt people. Offended people offend people. Because there's a root of bitterness in them, it springs up, and it doesn't just defile them. They end up becoming people that sow that same bitterness and hatred in others. That's why when someone's being rude to you, and someone's being rough, you go, you know, you go to TJ Maxx and the clerk, the, the, the checkout lady is not looking at you in the eyes, barely even acknowledging your presence, and she doesn't say anything, and uh, kind of gets mad at you because you're taking too long to get things out of your cart onto the, onto the counter so she can continue to count and, and tally it all up, and she's being bitter towards you. That's not the time to retaliate with your own bitter remarks. That's the time to realize that this lady or this man or whatever, forget TJ Maxx analogy, get anywhere you're at, the gas station, at Walmart, in your own family, you go to a family reunion and there's always that aunt that's just bitter, hard to talk to. Well, there's a reason why she's so embittered. That's why Jesus said, you need my joy to be made full of you. Those people have never had his joy to overflow in them. And because they don't have his joy, they succumb to the pressures of life and they become victims. Remember, there's two types of people in life. Victors in Christ and victims of the enemy. And when you see someone that's like a machine gun of offense and hatred and bitterness, it's the time to precisely realize these people are victims of the devil. And the Bible says, if you only love those that love you and can repay you, what kind of love is that? Don't even tax collectors love in such a manner. And if you only love people that love you back, what good is that? Don't even sinners do the same to those that love them. True love is not just loving those that can pay you back or do good to you or, or are nice to you or, you know, uh, they've shown you favor in the past and they're just kind and... and uh, you know, they, they, they give you money all the time. and they No, true love is loving the worst of the worst. True love is like Jesus said, love those that hate you. Bless those that curse you. In doing so, you become children of your Father in heaven, and God will reward you for it. That's what the book of Matthew says. In doing so, in loving like that, because remember, God makes his reign to come on the just and the unjust. He makes his sun shine on the just and the unjust. Even God 
The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, I believe, even God overlooked times of ignorance of the Gentiles. Even God gave the Gentiles, pagans, rain and fruitful seasons. Even God showed a level of mercy towards those who didn't know anything about him and nor did they want anything concerning him. So Jesus is explaining this type of love in John chapter 15. He says, In these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay one's life down for his friends. Hallelujah. You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. What did he command you to do? That you love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? He gave everything for us, knowing that there, he shed his blood, not for a select few. He shed his blood for all humanity, knowing that many would still choose the way of darkness, knowing that many would still choose the broad way to destruction, knowing that many would still go in the way that seems right to them and reject the offering of Jesus and reject the love of God for themselves, reject the will of God for themselves, knowing all that, he still hung on that tree, redeeming us from the curse of the law. You know, something that makes forgiveness for me very easy to do is I always remember what I needed forgiving from or forgiving of. I needed forgiven. Because it becomes very easy to forgive the person that cut you off on the highway when you realize that you didn't just cut God off on a highway. The reason he had to put his son on that cross was because of us falling short of the glory of God. Forgiving becomes very easy when you realize what you've been forgiven of through what God's sacrificial seed did on that cross. Now he died for us. Becomes much easier. Forgiving becomes easier, even if it's the most vile things that have happened to you. No matter what you've, well, no matter what you've suffered at another man's or woman's hands, God suffered way much, way more from us. No matter what hurt or offense someone may have caused you, we have caused way more to God. And yet, he chose the love walk. And yet, he laid down his life for his friends. He called us his friends when in actual fact, all we ever did was to warrant us being his foe. He called us his friends. That's why Jesus said, to him who is forgiven much, loves much. When you don't think you've been forgiven much, you love little. Your love the level of love that you walk in is determined by the level of revelation of how much you've been forgiven of in life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So why is it important, now we're connecting faith with love here, why is it important that we love? And I'm going to get into deeper things in the coming minutes now because I'm not just talking about love in forgiving people and love for fellow man. I'm also talking about a love for God. We're going to get in that. And what it means to love God in purity of heart. Essentially, the two things that we're going to cover today is love for God and man and then 
purity of heart. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you why. Faith is hindered by A, your lack of love walk, and B, lack of purity of heart. And I don't just mean purity of heart in that uh, I'm, you know, I'm not thinking on sinful things. There's deeper things than that. Because people talk, you know, we talk about purity of heart and people think like, well, I'm doing okay. You know, I don't have sexual thoughts. I don't have, uh, I don't have uh, thoughts of covetousness. I'm pretty good. But there's, remember, God is pure to behold. The Bible says he dwells in light that's unapproachable. And so there's always another level of purity that you can access. And no matter how pure God's made you right now, in sanctification, in the process of becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ, there's always another level. And so we're going to get into the deep things of what it means to truly be pure in heart before God. But before I do that, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, I'm going to show you the connection of faith and love and purity. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything or matters but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith does not work where love is not present. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll read another scripture. Make this very clear. Paul, I know, I know a lot of people use this for their wedding uh, scripture and stuff. And it, it's applicable. Talks about love. Talks about the greatest love and the greatest demonstration or expression of love. But essentially, this chapter is connected to the gifts of the Spirit chapter in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul's talking about if you want God's power, the gift of faith, the gifts of healing, the working of miracles, if you want God's power to be operating in your life at a higher dimension and a higher level, where it's inescapable from others to see it, it's evident, love is the secret ingredient for these gifts to operate. And one of the gifts is the gift of faith. Remember, we talked about it. Faith worketh by love. Meaning faith does not work where love is not present. The laws of faith hang on the royal law of love. And if the royal law of love, like we read in James chapter 3 and verse 8, James chapter 2 and verse 8, if the royal law of love is neglected and ignored, the laws of faith become ineffective and futile. Let me say that again. If the royal law of love is neglected and ignored, then the laws of faith, which laws lead to your victory when applied, they become ineffective and futile. 1 Corinthians 13 and 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love. I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Pause here. There are many people in the church that speak speed tongues. And they can speak in tongues for three, four hours on a Sunday morning service. And some of them even love to give tongues, public tongues, carried by interpretation and all that. But you can really tell when someone carries love and someone doesn't carry love. Because Paul himself says, when someone's speaking in tongues, but they don't actually carry the love of God in their heart, they become an annoying symbol, a clanging symbol. What's a clanging symbol? I remember a couple of years ago, there was this video that went viral all across the internet, and it was of this guy that came into a church 
And there's a whole backstory to it, but for the sake of time, this guy comes into a church and they have him. He's not the regularly scheduled drummer, so they had him come in, but they hadn't rehearsed very much before. And so they got to this song called Oceans by Hillsong, which is a very, I mean, relatively soft song. It's not this rock star song. It's not a punk rock song. It's a soft song. And this guy who hadn't rehearsed very much, he, I don't know if you ever saw it, Angel, the video. It's funny. He, show hand emoji in the comments if you saw this video. He went AWOL. I mean, he just abandoned the theme and melody of the song. And he started, he started to just clang and slam and but he was so off like the piano was so soft her her voice was so soft but he started to let it rip like rage against the machine type of like there emily saw it he was rocking he was going nuts and it ruined the entire set i think it was on worship fails instagram page it was so bad it was horrible he ruined the entire set and it's not that he wasn't a good drummer it's that he was, he, was, he was hitting way too hard, and he was off. I mean, yeah, I guess he was a terrible drummer. There's no other way to say it. Well, that's what Paul's saying. Someone speaking in tongues, but void of the love of God in his heart, is like. You're throwing it through the whole service off. It threw everyone off. You can see, it's actually funny. You see the lady, like the worship leader, she, she, she like turns her head and looks at the drummer. Like, then her hands start coming out. And she's like pretty much wishing that the electricity just goes out and, you know, God spares her of this embarrassment. But it, it was horrible. That's what Paul's saying. You don't have love in your heart. Remember, 1 John, the apostle John says that if you say you love God but don't love other people, the truth is not in you. The love of God does not abide in you. And you're still walking in darkness. You're not walking in light. And you become an irritant to everyone because people can tell. Paul's saying you can tell. You can speak in speed tongues. You can speak in the tongues of angels. You can even bring an interpretation for all we care. But if you don't have love, you've become like that drummer. You're clanging cymbals. You're off beat. And everyone can tell there's something up. What are you saying? And though I have the gifts of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and I have all knowledge. He's saying if I can prophesy future events in detail, as if I'm speaking history written in advance, and though I have all faith, and that's what we're sticking on today, though I have all faith, so he's not even saying mustard seed faith. He's saying you have all faith. You've got the God kind of faith on the scene. I mean, you have perfect faith in your heart. How many times have you heard people say, I've got all the faith in the world. I just don't know why it's not working. I'll tell you why sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you can have all faith to remove every mountain. What did we start this broadcast on? Matthew 17. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be moved from here to there, and it will obey you, and nothing will be impossible for you. Paul's saying you don't just have mustard faith. You've got all faith, and you can move all mountains, and nothing's impossible for you, but you have not love. Paul says you've become nothing. Nothing. Nada zilch. Nothing. Worthless. Useless. Unusable. Unusable. So he's not saying that... He's not saying that these people... He's not, he's not ignoring the fact that some people can really, truly have genuine faith in their heart. 
He's saying that love, when not present, renders that faith useless. I heard it said this way. The gun is your faith. The bullet is the word of God, the promises of God that you're putting your trust and faith in. But the explosive force, the gunpowder, is love. Hallelujah. You can have the gun. You can have a bullet. But if it doesn't have gunpowder in it, and there's no, there's no gunpowder in it, it ain't going to fire off. You can have faith to move mountains. You can know all the scriptures and stand on 70 different promises of God that guarantee a certain thing. But Paul said, if you don't have love, then you don't got the explosive force. You don't have the thing necessary to cause your faith to actually produce real results in your life. So love is important. And like I said before, when we're talking about love, we're talking about two things. Love for man, and we, we address that, and I'm not going to get more into that. But love for man, which is forgiving people. I don't think I have to go through that. It's so hard to forgive. It's not hard. I forgive you. All right, never bringing it up again. Not hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. You have people that write 17 volumes on how to forgive your brother. It's not hard. I forgive you, and now I'm going to pray for you. And the more I pray for you, guess what? The more God's going to empty whatever feelings of bitterness I've had, and the more he's going to fill it with love for that person. That's it. It's very simple. We don't have to get through 17 hours or six different broadcasts, part one through six series on that. It's a simple thing. I forgive you, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then pray for them. And as you pray for them, God's going to empty you, flush out all the bitter feelings, and he's going to fill it with good, good feelings. Good feelings, good thoughts for those people. But now we're going into the love for God part of things. This is important because this is where purity of heart it matters the most. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. What hinders people's faith? One, a lack of love for others. And two, an impurity of heart. Your motives, your ambitions. Why are you doing what you are doing? Is very important to assess and evaluate and examine. Because when Paul said you can have all the faith in the world to get something, but you don't have love or you have an impure motive, it ain't going to get you there. you got to have pure motives. Matthew 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's break that down. I did a little study in the Greek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Let's start with that. Blessed is the Greek word makarios. It literally means to be supremely blessed above all. It means to be fortunate, well-off, super happy. It actually oftentimes was used as a congratulatory greeting. Makarios, meaning blessed are you among all people. Congratulations. So you can even translate it this way. Congratulations to those that are pure in heart. You're going to see God. Hallelujah. So it's important to be of pure heart. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, and we'll get there, but in Psalm 15 it says, who can stand on God's holy hill? Who can ascend the hill of the most high? How high you go with God is determined by how pure you are in your heart. Who can ascend? How high you go with God depends upon how pure you are in your heart. What is the posture of your heart? 
when you're doing things. You could be doing the right thing with the wrong motives. And that's why you're abased. That's why you're still at ground zero and nothing's being built. Because God cares way more about the character and integrity of your heart than he cares about your ministry and he cares about your life and he cares about your goals and your dreams and your ambitions. Because listen, he as the eternal one has seen it far too many times where impure hearts with great talent are taken up and up and up. And the higher they went, just guaranteed that their downfall became much more hurtful, much more harmful, much more dangerous. Because it, and you've heard it before, your character will keep you where your talent goes. But if you don't have character, your talent can take you up and up. But if you don't have the character to stay there, you're going to fall you're going to fall. Pride comes before fall. Haughty heart, a haughty spirit, an impure heart will come before destruction. God will not take you to a place where he doesn't believe you have the character to sustain you at that level. I really believe that. That's why he's saying, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. They're going to see God. And if you study the word see there, it's optonomai, which is where we get the word optometrist, and literally means to allow oneself to be seen, to appear on the scene. God will never appear on the scene of one whose heart is not pure in motive. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. They're going to see God appear on the scene. They're going to behold something remarkable is another way to translate that. Optonomai. To behold something remarkable. You'll never see the hand, the evident hand of God at work until that inner work is done. God is more concerned with the inner work of the heart and forming the nature and character of Christ in you than he is in what you can do for him. And I've said this before. God cannot use the talented, skilled one who's impure in his heart and selfish in his ambitions. That's why he chooses the foolish things of this world. That's why he chooses the weak things of this world. Because what they are lacking, the anointing can complement and supply. But the one who is high-minded, though skilled, God cannot use that man. But the one who is weak and unskilled, he can use, he can use to do great things. Because what he's lacking, the anointing can supply. The anointing can compensate. Hallelujah. That's why Paul said, where I was weak, now I'm strong. And so I boast in my weaknesses. I boast in my weaknesses. I boast. You know, people use that, I boast in my weaknesses, to kind of like warrant them going around and say, I'm just, uh, just, just, so, just an ant. Just an ant. I'm just a dead bug on the windowsill. <laughs> Hallelujah. And yet he still uses it. That's not what God's saying. That's not what Paul was saying. He wasn't saying, talk about how stupid you are. I'm just dumb. He's not saying berate yourself. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm useless. That's not what he's saying. He was saying, when I boast in my weaknesses, he's, he's essentially saying, because if you follow it later in that verse, he says, therefore, where I was weak, I'm now strong. He's saying, I boast in what I couldn't do because now I'm able by the power of Christ. So he's not saying, I boast in how weak, how insignificant, how stupid I am, and you know what? God still uses me. No, he's saying, 
When I got called, I wasn't a great speaker, but now I'm anointing to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. When I got called, I didn't have I didn't have everything all together. It's kind of a mess. But now God has helped me unto this day. And we've built something laying upon the foundation of Christ. We've built in gold, silver, and precious stones. That's how I am. When I was called, I couldn't preach. I had OCD. I had anxiety. I had agoraphobia. I didn't like standing in big places with a lot of people. And now I boast in that because God's power has amply supplied that which, was I, which I was lacking where I can stand before a great crowd of people. And the more people there is, the more bold I am, the more confident I am. Quite the switcheroo. That's what Paul was saying. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I know if I took a show of hands in the comment section, many of you can say, without him, I was, I was unable to do anything. But with Christ, what's Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm sure if you ask Francis Domingo, watching right now from Vancouver, if when the hand of God came on him, he would, he, he automatically, you know, knew that he had the power and capacity to start a mega real estate business and have a, a, his own office space and just making uh, his name becoming renowned now in the Vancouver area with real estate. And like people are starting to get, he, he, he didn't have all that. He didn't have the capacity to do any of that. It's the grace of God. It's the prosperity of God. It's the hand of God on his life. That's why Paul says, I can't boast in anything except for the power of the cross that has made me more than able to do everything I'm doing today. And so it all comes down to purity of heart, which many times, or not many times, purity of heart actually stems from humility of heart. Humility of heart. You'll never be pure in heart if you're not humble. You look at Moses. Why did God use Moses to do so many great things? Well, because Moses, the Bible says in Numbers, he was the most humble man in all the earth. The most humble man. The Bible says, with humility comes honor and glory. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and glory. By pride comes nothing but trouble. It's humility that is the root that brings purity of heart. When you realize, I've got nothing to offer him. He's done it all. I acknowledge him in all my ways. Everything I'm seeing that is good and perfect came down from his hand. And had it not been the hand of God, we wouldn't see anything we're seeing today. So David said in Psalm 44, 3, I didn't gain possession of the land by my great power or the strength of a horse or an army. I gained possession because of the light of his countenance and because of his help and he favoring me. Jabez understood this. Jabez, the prayer of Jabez, Lord, enlarge my territory. Bless me that I may not cause harm to anybody around me. And that you would give me great favor and success. And the Lord granted him his request. Why did God grant Jabez his prayer? Because he came to that point of realization, that conclusion. If I'm going to do anything for God on the earth, if I'm going to go high, I got to go low. If I want to go high, I got to go low. Jesus himself said, those that are exalted in themselves will be humbled, 
And those that humble themselves before the mighty hand of God will be exalted. In due time, God will promote them. This all came, as I was reading, uh, they shall see God. They'll see remarkable things come to them by the hand of God. That's what seeing God is. It's not actually seeing Jesus in the flesh coming down in a vision, although that may happen. What Jesus was saying is that you're going to see the evident hand of God's favor in your life. Remarkable things done by the hand of God that you could not credit to any other human institution. So let's go now to pure, because that's what we're focusing on. Makarios, supremely blessed, congratulations, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is pure? The Greek word katharos. It means to be purified by fire. It means to be like a vine that has been cleansed through the pruning process. The diseased parts of it, the guilty part of it, pure of heart means to lose the guilt of your past. Pure of heart means to have a clean conscience before God. Pure of heart means to empty yourself of self and selfish ambitions and envy for others and jealousy and hatred and ill thoughts or feelings towards another, to empty yourself from all that, to not set anything wicked before your eyes. Psalm 101, David explains it pretty good on what it means. And I think if we're going to talk about purity of heart, David is one of the chief examples of it, seeing that God called him a man after his own heart. And Psalm 101 says in verse 2, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. This is what purity of heart is. This is what it means to be faithful to God in your heart. Because remember this, God does not want your money, your time, your help, even your service. He don't want your worship. He don't want your praise. He don't want anything until you've first given him your heart. The Bible says Jesus rebuked the people. He said, these people, they draw near to me with their lip service, but their hearts are far from me. They've not drawn near with their heart. He rebuked the Old Testament children of Israel in Joel chapter 2. He talks about, render to me your hearts and not your garments. He was saying, you keep ripping your clothes in repentance. Save your clothes. Rip your heart open for me. Give me your heart. Tie your heart to worshiping me. Don't just come with your new moon festivals and feasts and all the festivals and Purim and all the Jewish festivals. Don't just keep celebrating those, giving yourself another reason to get together with family. But I'm not even the sole focus of it all. You've abandoned me. Put me at the center of your attention again. Put me as the focal point of all things that you do. Keep your eyes on me. That's what purity of heart is. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. I will render to God my heart. I'm giving you my heart. What's my heart? See, people, some of you got excited when I said God doesn't want your money. Finally, a preacher who says God doesn't want your money. No, when you give God your heart, your money's in it. There was a lot of people a couple, couple of uh, years ago, they had this, we don't believe in tithing in the New Testament. We don't believe in tithing. Tithing's not a New Testament construct. It's an Old Testament thing. It's part of the law, Levitical law, Deuteronomy. You can read it there. We don't see it in the New Testament, which, by the way, that's a lie. Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, 23, 
You tithe mint, cumin, and other spices and herbs, and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are what? Love, justice, and mercy. Jesus doesn't finish there. He says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he's not saying, hey guys, stop tithing. It's all about love. No, he's saying you're tithing, but you've neglected love. You've neglected, you've not tied your heart to your seed. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So even if you don't, which I believe tithing is absolute in the New Testament, the longest diatribe of Scripture, the entire Bible, on tithing is in Hebrews chapter 7, New Testament. It talks about the concept of tithing. So don't at me because I said tithing is still New Testament. You read it yourself. Hebrews chapter 7 talks about it. It's the longest portion of Scripture given towards the tithe in all the Bible. And it's a New Testament Scripture. But here's what I'm getting at. Even if you want to say, I don't believe in tithing. Like, well then, good for you. Even though it's not scriptural, good for you. But you should be giving way more than 10% if you don't believe in tithing and you're subscribing to a New Testament concept. Because the New Testament concept was not just 10%, although they did continue to tithe. History shows. New Testament concept was we are selling lands, properties, and businesses to bring it to the apostles' feet so that we can advance the gospel in our generation. That's why Jesus said, give me a heart. And where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your, your treasure is tied to your heart. Jesus was saying, don't just give me your treasure. First give me your heart, and then your offerings, your seed, your tithes, and your free will offerings and gifts to God. Then they'll be recognizable. Then God will receive them. It's the whole story of Cain and Abel. Cain gave the leftovers. Abel tied his heart to his offering, and he gave his best. He gave the fattest of his flock in an honor towards God, recognizing that everything I have, all the sheep I have, belong to him in the first place. So, David says in Psalm 101, verse 2, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. A perfect heart. A pure heart. A clean heart. Clean heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I will hate the work of those who fall away. It will never cling to me. A perverse heart will depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will... See how many times he mentions heart? Heart, heart, heart. He keeps talking about his heart. That's the core of you. That's who you are. That's the real you. Even in Psalm 51, it says that God desires truth in your inner man, in your heart. Truth in your inner man, in your heart. My eyes will be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he will serve me. He who walks in a perfect way, who has a perfect heart, a pure heart, he will serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies will not continue in my presence. So you see that David took steps to keeping his heart pure before God. 
Guard your heart, Proverbs 4.22. Proverbs 4.22. Guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. Guard your heart against impurity, impure motives. Why is it important to guard your heart against impure motives? James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good works that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 14. James 3, 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. So James is essentially saying, the one who has bitter envy. What is bitter envy? It's seeing somebody accomplish something by the grace of God and then hating them for it because you didn't get it. That's what bitter envy is. It's belittling other ministers that are doing the work that you want to do, but you're belittling them in your own insecurity so that you can appear bigger in the flesh than what you really are. That's what bitter envy is. Oh, yeah, I know what he's doing. Yeah, I saw that crusade. Yeah, how many of them were actually believers, though? Or how many of them were actually, like, lost sinners? I think a lot of Christians were at that crusade. I don't think it was actually lost sinners. I think it was a lot of Christians. It's bitter envy. Oh, I, I heard about that church. Yeah, well, they don't preach the full gospel. That's why they're big like that. No, maybe sometimes, but not all the time. There's a lot of great big mega churches. That's bitter envy. Bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart. What's self-seeking? It's I'm seeking to advance what I'm doing, not for the benefit of God and kingdom, but for my own benefit. And there's a lot of people in the church that are self-seeking. You think that's only for like the world. No, no, no. There's people in the church that are self-seeking. They want a position. They want to be a board member on the church, not because of them wanting to give more time and their energy and resources towards establishing a church, a local church, but they're doing it because they want to be seen. They want the prestige. They want the honor. They want, whenever communion is taken on Sunday morning, it's the brethren, the elders, that get to distribute the communion elements, the bread and the, water, uh, the, bread and the wine, the bread and the juice. They want to be seen. They want to be on the inn. Because in board meetings, that's where everybody is hearing everybody's gossip. In some churches, they want to be on the inn. They want to have a level of control over what is done in the church and where money's going. It's all self-seeking. There's some people, they give money and an offering. Get this. There's some people that give money and an offering so that their daughter can sing on the worship team. Self-seeking. There's people that give money. They're multimillionaires. They give a nice size offering. And then they give the pastor a call and say, hey, just calling you, uh, you know, my daughter can sing too. And we've heard your daughter. She's horrible. She's not good. She can't sing. She sounds like a clanging cymbal in a noisy brass. <laughs> but then pastors that are insecure in their own selves and don't trust in God and don't look to the hand of God, what do they do? Oh, yeah, sure. I'll call 
the worship leader right now, and we'll have her on Sunday. Just have her, have her at uh, worship practice this week. We'll have her on Sunday. Because they're not looking to the hand of God. They're looking to the hand of men, and they're afraid that if I don't do this, then they're going to leave the church, and with them leaving the church, they're going to take their tithe and their money. Go, take your tithe and offerings elsewhere. <laughs> that person's self-seeking. They're self-seeking. The wisdom, whenever you're operating and with bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, notice where it stems forth. Jesus himself said in Matthew 15, for from within the heart proceeds adultery, fornication, envy, anger, evil thoughts, and bitter feelings. From within the heart. That's where it all stems forth from. And then he says, those who operate like that, these things defile the man. I did a word study once on that word defile. It literally means to render useless. That when envy and bitter, envy and self-seeking is in your heart and selfish ambition, you actually, before God, you have been made useless. God can't use you. That's why it's important. Going back to what we're talking about. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. They'll see God's hand at work in their life. They'll see God moving on behalf, on their behalf. It's important to get back to the basics. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? I got to take evaluation. Every time I sense to do something, I have to take self-evaluation. Why am I doing this? Because anything you do, even good, will fail, collapse, and forfeit the backing of heaven when there's bitter envy and self-seeking attached to it. God himself said, whenever you have that in your heart, it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's demonic in nature. Think of it, the devil. The devil, the Bible says, had everything to his name. I mean, he was like the chief angel in heaven. But iniquity was found where? In his heart. He started, he, he lost his guard over his heart and allowed impure, evil thoughts to start percolating and bubbling up from his heart. And then he started to say, I will ascend above. I'll ascend above. Why did he want to ascend above? He wanted to be seen. He wanted to be the focal point of heaven. He wanted the attention God was getting. He was self-seeking, and he was envious towards God. That's why James says, when you have that in yourself, I'm telling you, it's the devil operating on you. It's the devil trying to work, steer something up in you. It's a demonic wisdom that you must reject with your spirit. That's, that's a good scripture. Renew a right spirit in me. Nina, that's what Psalm 51, when David sinned, he immediately said, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast, a loyal, a right spirit in me, a right heart in me. Because nobody is immune to those impure thoughts trying to seek a back door into your heart. Nobody's immune. As long as you're in the flesh, you're always going to have to guard yourself against that. James 3.16, for where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. I love how James says that. 
Where e envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. No matter what you try to do, it's like there's just a confusion. There's like a cloudiness. There's a, there's a disarray. There's a disarray. You're trying to do something, but that which is motivating you is envy and self-seeking. Not seek first the kingdom of God, it's seek first myself. When that happens, it's, there's confusion. There's no clarity of vision. And then it says every evil thing exists there. It actually, instead of attracting God's backing, it attracts the devil's opposition. It attracts demonic opposition. Every evil thing exists there where there's envy and self-seeking. You look at somebody that's riding on the high places of the earth. I'm telling you, they have denied themselves. They have crucified themselves. And they have, they, they've, they've, like a seed sown in the ground, died to their will, died to themselves, and they're living for God in pure purity. Anyone that has, and I'm talking about an actual effective ministry. Not just smoke and mirrors, a big building. I mean an effective ministry. Because there's a lot of big ministries today that are literally one month away from bankruptcy. There's a lot of big ministries out there that don't, it looks like they have heaven's backing on the outside, but you get into their eternal affairs. There's confusion, and there's every evil thing that's there. And it's in disarray. It's disheveled. Nobody gets along. The staff hate each other. It's a mess. It's a mess. But when you operate by divine wisdom, which Jesus said, if you desire to come after me, here's the wise way to do it. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, which is crucifixion of self. Galatians 5 says, whoever has, who belongs to Christ has crucified his flesh along with his desires and his passions. I'm not living for me. I'm living for him. That type of wisdom, James said, is pure. It's peaceable. It's peaceable. It carries the fruit of peace. I'm telling you, at our ministry, we're peaceful. We're peaceful. There's a lot of peace in this ministry. There's no internal arguments. There's no internal wrestling. There's peace. There's joy. The Bible says it's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy. It has good fruits. It has good fruits. Pure heart produces good fruits. Without partiality and it's without hypocrisy. Hallelujah. Without hypocrisy. So I'm not just one way before a group of people and then when I get behind closed doors, I'm a totally different person. No. Purity of heart will cause you to be the same person behind the veil as you are in front of the veil. Behind the scenes as you are in public. Purity of heart will cause you to carry integrity of heart both in private and public spaces. That's another reason why God loved David. Psalm 78, verse 72. Psalm 78, verse 72. Psalm 78, verse 72. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. He wasn't a hypocrite. 
What's hypocritos? The Greek word literally means to be an actor, a paid actor. You're dry near with your lips. Like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Jesus said, you, you appear before men as beautiful washed cups, but you've only made the outside of your cup clean. Inside, there's maggots. Could you imagine if you came to my house and I offered you a glass of water and in the glass, the outside was sparkling, Mr. Clean's bald head type of clean. But then when you went to drink, you put it to your mouth and you looked in it and there was a worm, a maggot, dirt, just all over the surface of the inside of the cup. So Jesus was saying, he said, you hypocrites, first make the inside of the cup and the dish clean and then the outside will be clean also. Purify. And this, I'm going to finish with this. How do we, and I had so much more to get into. I was going to contrast Saul with David. Because if you look at Saul, Saul was an impure heart. David was a pure heart. Saul, and it's not that David never sinned. And that's another thing. Some people are hearing me now and they're saying, oh, this guy, he's on his high horse. No, it's not that David never sinned. Purity of heart does not mean you've never sinned or you never sin again. Purity of heart is I recognize when I'm off track and I immediately make plans and do what is necessary to get back on track. Like David, when he sinned against uh, Uzziah in murdering him to take Bathsheba as his wife because he had already conceived child with her, he murdered her husband, put him on the front lines, and then Nathan the prophet came to David and said, you've done wicked in the eyes of God. You've done evil in the eyes of God. And David's reaction was not, oh, you know what, he'll get over it. Grace, amen. No, David's reaction was, I've sinned against the Lord. And go to Psalm 51. It's literally the prayer of repentance he prayed. He said, Lord, don't deal with me according to my work. Because if you do, you're right when you judge. I should be dead. He said, deal with me according to the mercy of your hand. Deal with me according to the mercy and grace of your heart. And he said, create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. Lord, Teach me to fear your ways so that I can teach others and sinners will be converted to you. He said, give me truth in the innermost being. He was sincerely penitent before God. Whereas Saul, when he failed to keep God's commandments in preserving the life of Agag, the king, when God said, kill all the Amalekites and kill the king too, and he preserved them. Samuel came and he said, what have you done? Saul said, I, I kept the commandments of the Lord. I did everything. And Samuel says, what is then the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? I told you to kill everything. I'm hearing the animals. You took the animals. And that King Agag, didn't he tell you to kill him? Oh, yes, I kept King Agag. But the, the, the bleeding of all the sheep and all the oxen, that was we were going to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to use good. We're going to use that for good. And what did Samuel reply? Has the Lord as much delight in offerings and the fat of rams as he does in obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And what did Jesus say? Is the platform for obedience to God. Those that keep my commandments are they that love me. Those that keep my commandments are they that love me. So, obedience stems forth from a love for God. Love carries fruit. 
And Samuel was essentially saying, you carry a partial love for God because you did a partial completion of the mission God sent you on. But you've not given him your full heart. And I'm telling you right now, God will not use the person who's 50% in, 50% out. God will not use the person that's 98% in and 2% out. God will not use the person that's 99.9% in, but that 0.1% out. God, you're either all in or not in at all with him. You've either given yourself entirely to him or he says on that day, depart from you. I never knew you, you doers of iniquity. Saul was not guilty of doing nothing. Saul was guilty of doing something, but not everything. And he said to heed, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the, than the fat of rams. And first of all, Saul, all that offering, all the sacrifice, all the animal that he was supposedly going to sacrifice to God, what did that cost Saul? It didn't cost him anything. The difference between him and David Saul was ready to offer up a cheap sacrifice to God that cost him absolutely nothing. It was the spoil of war. Whereas David, when someone was going to offer up his field for David's usage, he said, no, 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 no. I am not going to sacrifice to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Charge me for it. Anything I do for God, there's going to be sacrifice tied to it. Why? Because I'm not just giving God lip service. My heart is in everything that I do. And I've laid my life on the altar of sacrifice. Hallelujah. That's why Saul got the kingdom removed from him. And you read Samuel's last words to Saul were very harsh. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. God has rejected you from being king. Because you have rejected obedience, which remember, we're talking about the secret ingredient to explosive faith. The thing that a lot of people are lacking in faith, which is the royal law of love. Walking in love before God in purity of heart and before man. In loving man as you would have man love you. Doing unto others as you would have others do unto you. And Samuel says, because you fail to obey, because you failed to put your heart in this, God has rejected you from being king. You're not going to rise from the throne. The throne is going to be taken from you because of your partial commitment to God. Hallelujah. So how do you purify your heart so you don't end up like Saul, but you stay as a, as a David in your generation? Very quickly, the word of God will wash your heart clean. This is the practical side of things. The word of God will wash your heart clean. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, the washing of the water of the word cleanses you. And even Jesus said, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word of God cleans you. The word of God is like a fire and it purges you of impurities. It burns off the chaff of the flesh and it inserts into you integrity and everything God is. God's word carries God's nature. When you get his incorruptible word in your heart, you get his incorruptible nature in your heart, and it starts to produce fruit. Starts to produce fruit. Number two, prayer. When you pray, when you pray, this is what happens. Malachi chapter two. When you pray, if you're just joining me right now, thanks for joining me. Hit that like button on YouTube and uh, help us get this word out. If you're on Facebook, hit that share button. Malachi chapter 2, verse uh, 2 and 3. For God is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So when you pray, what are you doing? Essentially, if you read in the book of Luke, when Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he prayed, the Bible says, the appearance of his face was altered. When you pray, you're entering in to the tangible presence and anointing of God, God's Spirit. And as a result, you start to rub on God, and God rubs on you and rubs off on you. And it's not your nature getting into Him. It's His nature starting to get into you. And as iron sharpens iron, God's very sharp sword starts to sharpen your blunt sword so that you become sharp, so that you become pure. He purges you, purifies like a refiner's fire. The Bible says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. Now that word test can be interpreted as in the Lord changes the heart, or the Lord is the one that purifies the heart. The Lord purifies the heart. Hallelujah. That purification process is sped up as you plug in in prayer. As you plug in in prayer. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father after he had purged us of our sins. There's a purging process that God wants to bring you to. And as pure as you think you are in heart, I'm telling you, there's always another level of purity. Now, understand this. I am not saying that you're unclean before God. Because the Bible says when you get saved, he removes the heart of flesh and he gives you a heart of uh, he removes the heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh, a heart created in God's nature. You have a clean spirit now, a clean, pure spirit. But your soul, which oftentimes heart, can be interchangeably used for either spirit or soul. Your soul, whereas your thinking processes, has to catch up with the work God did in your spirit. So though your spirit is already 100% clean and perfect and purified in the eyes of God, your soul now, your heart has to catch up with what God already did in perfection in your spirit. And that's what we get the word sanctification, which is the process whereby you are conformed day by day more and more into the image, the perfect image of God. Hallelujah. So the word of God washes away impure thoughts jealousy, ambition. Prayer will remove insecurity, fear of man, which brings a snare, and all kinds of things. Then I'll get into a little bit more practical things. Hanging around pure people will help purify your soul. Hanging around pure people will help give you a pure heart. Don't hang around people that are always talking about things that you know don't please God. Don't expose your ears or your eye gate to people and conversations that you know are essentially corrupt. The Bible says that we are to flee wickedness and evil and pursue righteousness, faith, holiness, and love with those, 2 Timothy 2.22, with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Seek out godly relationships. Not just in marriage, but in friendships. And I'm telling you, I feel to tell this to some of you here today. Maybe this is you. 
I don't know, but I feel like a word of knowledge. Some of you go to churches where the pastor and the preacher says stupid things from the pulpit in an effort to sound more relatable with the sinner and more trendy and more culturally appealing. And they say impure things from the pulpit. There's a guy I know who, who started off good, holy. God gave him a mess, massive church and building. And then he started to get under a preacher whom he deemed as his like apostle or whatever, his overseer. And it corrupted the man's purity of heart. And now he's allowing, because from the leadership flows everything else, he's allowing all kinds of nonsense in his church. And I've heard some of the worst preaching come out of the pulpit from his church. Not just from him, but from his associates. Be careful with who you associate in the ministry or in life. It's important to guard your fellowship. The Bible makes it clear. Evil company corrupts good morals. But whoever walks with the wise will be wise himself. Whoever is the companion of a fool will be destroyed. But whoever walks with the wise will be wise. And don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. The Bible says in Proverbs, make no friendship with a furious man. And with a man given to anger, do not go lest you learn his ways. You think you're going to affect change in him? Oh no. Nine times out of ten, it's they affect change in you. For the worse, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man. Do not go lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Be careful who you hang out with. And then another thing, be careful what you listen to and what you watch. You want pure heart? Stop listening to Taylor Swift. You want a pure heart? Don't listen to good girl gone bad. You want a pure heart? Stop putting gangsta music in you that's all about sleeping around and dealing drugs. But it's got a good beat. Oh yeah, enjoy your beat as you march on the Broadway that leads to destruction. Monitor what you listen to. And don't say, oh, well, there's no good Christian rap. There is good Christian rap. Uh, my, uh, my, what do I call it? My assistant here, she, her husband, Godina, Nate Godina, he, he, he's an amazing Christian rapper. Puts secular artists to shame. Makes secular, I mean, you look at some of the lyrics, and it's so like non-creative now, but it's got a good beat. I whip my hair back and forth, I whip my hair back and forth, I whip my hair back and forth. What is that? Her husband, she, he actually like, concentrates and focuses on getting good lyrics, godly, edifying lyrics. Go look them up on Spotify or something. I am Godina. Be careful what you listen to. Because the devil uses music to get to your soul, I'm telling you. The devil himself was the chief musician in heaven. And so he's a masterful musician, and he uses music today to influence emotions. Music is highly 
influenceable. What's the word? Influential. Music is highly influential. Highly influential. And I'm not immune to that. If I put on Linkin Park in the end right now, as catchy as that beat is, I'm telling you, by the end of that song, I'm going to have, it's just like it just happens. I'm going to have my hair set the side, emo look, little bangs, front bangs, with my nails painted dark. And I'll, I'll probably be in an amnesia store buying like checkered black and white print shirts with skinny jeans that are cutting my blood circulation within like 30 minutes. It just happens. You're like at the end of the song, the song's done. Like, where am I? Why are my nails painted? Like, it's depressing. The guy who, who, who was a lead singer, he killed himself, unfortunately. But you sing like that, you're not helping your case. In the end, it doesn't even matter. I tried so hard and got so far. But in the end, nothing even matters. You could be the most happy person on earth. And if you listen to that every day, I'm telling you, you are going to corrupt your soul. And you're going to lose that pure joy that the Holy Spirit gives you. Music is the enemy's way of sowing seeds of thoughts into people's minds. Because it's easy. I, I know, when I was in school, I would oftentimes tie a, a melody to that which I was trying to remember. Look at how we teach kids. A, B, what is it? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. They put a melody to, a, to information because you're, it's easy to remember. That's what the devil does. He wants to get information in you, but he knows if I just told you, if I came out and said, you'll try so hard and you'll get so far in the end, it's not going to matter. Carpe diem. Live for today. You're not going to receive that. But if I say, I tried, so, you're going to get that. And then all of a sudden you're like, dang, that song is catchy. Man, I can't get the, it, it's, it's on. I can't get it out of my head. And you hate yourself. Why do I keep singing that? It's just, and even if you don't use it with your mouth, your mind is just like a hamster playing on repeat the same song all day. The devil uses music. But in the same vein, you can use godly music to impart purity. There's a song I was singing, hallelujah, yesterday on the way to church. No, sorry, it was today. No, it was yesterday on the way to church. I was singing a song with my son in the car by Bishop G.E. Patterson. I'm going to live so God can use me any day, Lord, any time. I'm going to live so God can use me any way, Lord, any time. And I'm just singing it. And that song got in my spirit. I was singing it all day. It was in my head. That, that music can either malign your soul or purify your soul with God's truth. Use it to use good music. Get good music. And look, I know I use Taylor Swift and, and, and whoever else, Linkin Park and all that, and there's Cardi B and Nicki Minaj and all that. But I'm telling you, there's music and lyrics within the church. Some of you even sing at your own churches that should be discarded because there's no scriptural basis or precedence for singing those songs. Even if the healing doesn't come, Still I will rejoice. Where is that in the Bible? 
Where do you see Jesus saying, hey, lepers, go and show yourself to the priest, but even if the healing doesn't come, just know, I'm with you. No. He commanded them to go in faith because he wanted to heal them, and there was no if, ands, or buts. If, there is no if. Jesus never dealt with if. The only time Jesus said if was throughout the Bible you see covenant. If you'll do this, I'll do this. That's the only time. But as long as you live holy, keep your heart clean and pure, and do what God's told you to do, there's no if. So there's a lot of songs, even that people sing in church, that have no scriptural backing. And it's, it's just as bad as singing Lincoln Park. You might as well go sing Lincoln Park or something else. Then movies. Be careful what you watch. Be careful. Remember we read in Psalm 101, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. Watch, watch what you watch. Keep care with what you watch. Don't just let Netflix to go on. Don't just let the TV rolling. Don't just let YouTube to just keep on... Even in, during the ads, sometimes YouTube has crazy ads. Jesus said, your eye is the gate to your soul. And if your eye is single, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is double-minded and evil, what you're allowing in is not godly or edifying. Jesus said, your whole body will be filled with darkness, meaning don't complain when you feel weighed down. It's, you're the victim of your own choices. But if you'll keep your eye single, you'll feel like a feather of a bird. You'll feel light. There's a lot of people that battle depression because their heart has been tainted with what they watch. With what they watch. That's what pornography does. Pornography messes people up. The most depressed people in the world are people given to pornography. And it's actually scientifically proven. John Hopkins University proved it. That because pornography enlarges you're uh, one of the glands in your brain that's in charge with endorphin release. Because it enlarges it, you uh, dopamine, sorry, in dopamine release. Because it enlarges that gland, basic things in life, like just going for a walk, getting ice cream, your gland, that gland's been enlarged so big that basic things do not release enough dopamine to satisfy your heart and bring joy. Because pornography just enlarges that uh, to, to abnormal levels. So just doing basic things doesn't satisfy anymore. That's why you see people, they start off with basic porn on a television for, because of a, a movie or whatever, and then they move on to something even deeper and darker, and then finally they're moving on to crazy, wicked. It's all wicked, but then they get into like really wicked things. Funky stuff, messed up things. Because it's not that stuff, that old stuff on year one, it don't satisfy them anymore. Doesn't get the thrill anymore. Thrill is gone. And if that's you in the name of Jesus, I'm telling you, God's gonna put his spirit on you right now to purify your soul, to empty your soul of everything pornography or sin did to damage your conscience in Jesus' mighty name. So the word washes, the spirit burns through prayer, hang around pure people, listen to pure music, watch pure things and movies, and then I'll say, be accountable to people. How do you stay pure in heart? Be accountable. David was accountable to Nathan, and he listened to Nathan, and Nathan set him in straight, set him straight, set him, checked him. Have people in your life that will check on you. Have people in your life that will 
Godly voices in your life that will check up on you, pray for you, pray together with you. Be accountable to people. Number six, or that'd be number seven, think lowly of yourself to guard your health from your heart from uh, pride and selfish ambition. How do you guard your health from impure motives and your heart from impure motives and selfish ambition? Think lowly of yourself. Think low. That doesn't mean berate yourself and think of yourself as stupid. It means to think lowly of yourself means to recognize that I am what I am by the grace of God. And I'm not going to abandon God's grace and I'm going to stay pure because who can ascend the hill of the Most High? Those that have clean hands and a pure heart. And so I know, my, I depend on God. I know that I depend on God for everything. Think lowly of yourself. Don't be high-minded. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. I don't need your help. I don't need... That's high-mindedness. Think lowly of yourself. It'll guard your heart from selfish ambition, pride, and every, uh, you know, things that would, would drag you down. And then finally, I'll end with this. Do a self-evaluation on yourself when you're stepping out to do something. Anything, God, anything you feel led to do, do a self-evaluation. Start with why. Why am I doing this thing? Begin with that question. And if the, the answer is anything else other than the Lord called me to do it, and I'm doing it for his glory. Paul said, whether I eat, drink, sleep, I do everything to the glory of God. So if I'm not doing this to God's glory, Jesus said, I have finished the work which you have given me to do, and I have glorified your name in doing so. So if I'm not doing a work to the glory of God, I don't do it. If there's self-seeking involved, if I'm doing something and I detect that I'm just doing it because I saw this guy do it or that guy do it, I'm not doing it. Take a self. The Bible says, test yourself and examine your heart to see whether you're in the faith. See whether you're in the perfect will of God. God's will is perfect, good, and acceptable. And there's things you can do and questions you can ask yourself that will allow you to see whether you're, you're doing things with godly motives. Let me make this clear to you. What you do for God is just as important as why you're doing that thing for God. The why is equally as important as the what. In God's economy, think of it this way. You're not going to be judged based on what you've done alone. You're going to be judged on the purity of your heart in everything that you did. That's in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. The Bible says that uh, as we build on the foundation of Christ, each one's work will be tested by fire. And the fire will reveal what kind of work that you did. And those who built with gold, silver, and stones will receive reward. Those who built with wood, hay, and stubble, they will suffer loss, yet not through as through fire. They'll be saved, yet as through fire. They'll suffer loss, meaning they might be saved, but they're, they're not going to get rewarded. Even though they may have built the same things, they're not going to get rewarded because their motive was off. Their motive was off. The Bible says that the Lord God is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
Motives are weighed. The Bible says the Lord. There is a way that seems right unto men, but the Lord weighs the motives. That's why David prayed. And this is what we're going to finish off. We're going to pray with this right now. Psalm 139. Lord, search my heart and try me. Test me. See if there be any harmful thing in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for everyone that's watching right now. Ryan, Tabitha, uh, AC, discernment, and everyone else watching. I pray, Father, even now, that you would search our hearts and weigh our motives. Try our anxious minds. Search me thoroughly, O God. See if there be any harmful thing in me. Any motive in me that would offend you, Lord, remove it from us now in Jesus' name and lead us in the everlasting way. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for everyone that's watching right now that the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth would be pleasing in your sight, my God and Redeemer. Lord, that everything we do would be to the glory of God, that we would give you our hearts, not just in lip service, but that we would love you in sincerity, in action, in truth. For the Bible says that we are, we are to judge nothing before Christ comes, who will bring to light the secret motives of men. Father, on that day, when all motives are revealed, may we be found as those that were faithful stewards, that were doing things well, faithful to your commandments, to hear, well done, good, faithful servant. May we be found faultless, rejoicing, without stumbling before your throne of glory. In the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name. And if you believe that prayer with me, write amen in the comment section. Emily, Sharon, Ashley, God bless you all. Hallelujah. Just write amen. In the comment section, praise the Lord. Man, time flies. I didn't even know it was an hour and 45 minutes. I got to go pick up my kid. <laughs> praise the Lord. If you're watching right now, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you need to do that with me right now. If you have, you need to read, but you've like fallen astray. Impurity has gripped your heart. And today you're saying, Lord... I'm, I'm cleaning up shop. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. We used to sing that growing up in church. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Lord, it's all about you. Forgive me, Lord, for the things I've made. It. It's all about you. If that's you today and you're saying, I'm coming back to that heart of worship. I, I'm rededicating my life to Jesus Christ. I'm not living for self anymore. Uh, there's a way that seems right unto men. It's only brought me to death. I'm going another way. I'm, I'm, I'm going the highway of God, the highway of righteousness. I'm dropping my hands with the devil, and I'm joining hands with Jesus today. I'm recommitting my life to Christ. If you need to do that with me, pray this now, right now, wherever you're at. It could be in your living room. It could be at work. It could be in your car. It could be watch, listening to this on the, at the gym on a podcast for all I care. I don't know where you're at right now. You could be all around the world, but pray this with me out of your mouth. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Come live in me. Fill me with your power. 
Fill me with your spirit. Where I was weak, make me strong. Purify my soul. Purify my heart. Lord, give me right motives in everything I do. I will live for you, for I renounce this world, and I renounce the devil. I receive Jesus into my heart. I am saved. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to go on my website, salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up is, I, I just got saved. Click that. Fill it out. The form, put, give me your address. I want to send something to you free of charge as a way of saying, welcome to the family of God. It's a Bible. It's a book by T.L. Osborne. There's some reading material that's going to help you plug in and uh, grow in your faith. Salvationnow.ca, I just got saved. Fill that out. I look forward to hearing from you. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji, or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.